record, we did not do that for all of you all from the South. <laughs> it was from our one resident Southerner. You all may not call him a Southerner. For us, being from Kentucky is a Southerner. Uh, I understand latitudinally that that is not, uh, you know, as South as you all. Uh, but, uh, and I'm the confusing one I'm, I'm hearing uh, because the way I talk and double negatives and this and that and the other and y'all, uh, that was just three years in Kentucky uh, that did that to me uh, and Mitch uh, as well. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, I pray that you have enjoyed um, our God thus far this morning. He is a great God, and He does go before us. And, uh, we are on the same side by His grace and, and His mercy on us. So, uh, for renovation, we've been journeying through the Pentateuch. Uh, the Pentateuch is the Greek word for the first five books of the Old Testament. Uh, it is uh, the, the Hebrew word is the Torah, uh, also known as the Law. And basically, like I said earlier, we've been journeying through the first five books of the Bible and doing a kind of a quick overview of those as, as obviously, you know, you get into 50 and 40 chapters per book and we're only spending two weeks each. Um, so what that means is that uh, we preach very long sermons um, to cover lots of chapters of the Bible at one time. Uh, since we don't have a Sunday night service, we just double everything in the morning. Um, I'm, I'm half joking. Uh, we don't do it because there's no Sunday morning service. We just do it because um, I don't know how to keep everything short. Uh, nevertheless, what we are doing as we are working through these books of the Bible, we are doing what's really known as like biblical theology. So we're kind of just tracing some themes throughout these passages. It's still expository in the sense that the text is driving the sermon but we're taking bigger chunks of, this, the, of Scripture and letting that drive what it is we talk about. Um, so as we, as we think through the Pentateuch, what we have found, in, and as we've preached the Pentateuch, what we've found is some major themes, particularly concerning God. That God here at the very beginning is establishing uh, His character. He's establishing what it looks like for God to interact with His world. Uh, he's establishing how He wants the people of the world to view Him and how today, particularly, He wants His people to interact with Him. And so God is establishing this from the very beginning. And so we've seen themes in Genesis. The three that we looked at in Genesis particularly was that God is holy, that God is merciful, and that God is sovereign. He's holy, merciful, and sovereign. And then in Exodus, as we spent last week, and this is kind of the second week of, of Exodus, uh, we have seen God's sovereignty. And last week, we particularly, I'm sorry, two weeks ago, we particularly looked at God's sovereignty as he worked through Moses and as he worked through Pharaoh. So we see God working sovereignly through what we would probably generally call the good that Moses accomplished and you know and leading his people to freedom and and the the plagues and so on and so forth and um, 
But then as we think about Pharaoh, we wouldn't typically classify the things that Pharaoh was doing as, as good. We would classify those as, as evil, not letting God's people go, the hardening of his heart. But what we saw as we worked through Exodus that, was that God was still sovereign over the hardening of Pharaoh's heart and the evil that Pharaoh did, even to the point where the text tells us that God himself hardened Pharaoh's heart. We tend to want to distance God from those kinds of things as far as we can in our minds. And, and admittedly, those are some hard things to kind of reconcile as we think about the evil of this world, but yet God is somehow sovereign over that. Nevertheless, the text says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And it also includes in there that Pharaoh hardened his own heart, but the text very clearly shows us God's sovereignty over Pharaoh. Now, we left off in two weeks ago... I'm just trying to catch some of us up and, and uh, kind of launch us into today's sermon. But where we left off was basically like the plagues. That ends. Pharaoh or uh, Moses leads the Israelites out. They cross the Red Sea. And now they've, they've stopped at the red, edge of the Red Sea. And uh, Pharaoh's army has been wiped out. And now begins kind of a three-month journey to Mount Sinai where they'll be given the law and the Ten Commandments. And and so on and so forth. So today, we're going to continue with the theme of the sovereignty of God displayed particularly in the book of Exodus. We're not going to survey sovereignty as all of Scripture would show us God's sovereignty, but particularly what do we see here concerning God's sovereignty in the book of Exodus. In particular, I think we will see God's sovereignty displayed as He distinguishes a special people for himself. He will distinguish his people. He will separate these people out from, first of all, the Egyptians, and then from the world at large. He begins this process of saying, these are my people. This is what my people will look like. Here's how my people will interact with me, and they will look much different than the rest of the world. You know, there's a popular notion in our day that God is for everyone in the sense that he will eventually save everyone. Um, now I think there's maybe a part in all of us that's, that's maybe right, that we would hope that everyone would be saved, and, and I hope that we all have that desire to take the gospel to the nations, that, that everyone would experience the love of God and experience the redeeming work of the gospel. But the fact is, is that God has not seen fit in His wisdom to work equally among everyone. There's this notion that God loves everyone equally and that God will indeed save all people in the end. Or that God loves all people with the same love. Instead, what we see is that for no reasons attributable to man, God chooses a people for himself and then works to distinguish them from the rest of the world. Then he works to change them and mold them and set them apart from the rest of the world. Exodus shows us that God does not work with all people the same way. He does not show the same mercy. He does not show the same grace. Instead, He shows mercy and grace and, and all the rest of His works to whom He desires to. So our goal for today is not to answer the question of why or how does God do this. Like we're not gonna, That's a pretty deep question to kind of jump into. But we're simply going to explore the very fact that this is what God has done and along the way, we're going to ask the question, what does that mean for us? How does, 
What does it mean for us that God would sovereignly work to set apart a people from himself? So we're going to ask kind of two questions as we proceed. One is, how does God display his sovereignty in the setting apart of a people? How does God display that? What does that look like in the book of Exodus? And then second of all, what does this mean for God's people then and now? So it's kind of the two questions that we're going to ask as we walk through. So the first thing I want us to see, and I think we see from the text, is, is to see God's sovereignty as he sets his people apart from the Egyptians. So it's a pretty basic one. See God's sovereignty, though, as he sets his people apart from the Egyptians. So he brought his people, understand the context, he brought his people into this superpower, the Egyptians. I mean, he, he, he sovereignly leads the people, of course this is through Joseph and the famine and all that. He leads his people, provides a way for at the time, in the beginning, a place of refuge, a place of relief. And then eventually, of course, Joseph dies and the people are found in oppression. They're found in slavery. God sovereignly works this so that his people wind up under oppression. But God plans, though, to show that when man has nothing to offer, that when man can do nothing for himself, the Israelites were stuck. They could not save themselves. That he alone, God alone, can make, can still make a name for himself. He can still be glorified. He can still work in such a way that all the world could only attribute the mighty works of the Exodus and the saving of these people from this superpower, the Egyptians, he could still make a name for himself. So first of all, notice God's purpose expressed. His purpose expressed. What is his purpose in setting the people apart from the Egyptians? Look at Exodus 8, verse 23. If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you. We're going to kind of jump around in the book of Exodus. But if you look at chapter 8, verse 23, it says, Thus, I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow the sign shall happen. So here, God is, is prophesying that He is going to set aside, He's going to divide God's people from the Egyptians. They will be separated. Then in chapter 9, verse 4, But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. Again, just see the dividing line that God is drawing here. There is a, a distinction between God's people and God, the property of God's people and the Egyptians and the property of the Egyptians. Then look two verses later in verse 6. And the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. So here, just in this very quick context, just nine chapters in, we see God is saying, my people are different. They are set aside. And notice that the setting aside here that's going on is not the, the work of the Israelites. It is the work of God. He chooses who is going to die. He chooses who is going to live. So see that God's purpose is clearly expressed in these passages here. Then see God's purpose displayed. See God's purpose displayed. You see this in the Exodus itself. God shows that He alone can overcome the superpower. I mean, think about the Red Sea. What of that is attributable to the Israelites? None of that. All they did was run, right? Like, ah, get out of Dodge, right? And then, oh no, there's a sea. What are we going to do now? We'll just float across, right? 
No, they go across. It splits, and, and then God wipes out. So just see the fact that God displays His division of the people of the earth. For these are my people, these are not my people. I care for my people. I will take care of them. I will sustain them. These are not my people. He displays that His people are not just distinguished by working class, but that they are a people all for Himself and His purposes for His reasoning, not because they necessarily deserved it. And God purposed to place them under oppression in a superpower so that in a mighty work He could draw them out. Just see God's sovereignty in pulling apart a people for Himself. Next, see God's purpose memorialized. See God's purpose memorialized. This purpose of setting apart a people for Himself. God even wants Moses to memorialize this lesson that they learned at the Passover. Look at chapter 12, verse 26 through 27. And when the children say to you, What do you mean by this service? You shall say, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For He passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt. Then He struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. So there's a, there's a memorializing of, a remembering of, a let's keep this in our memories concerning when the night when God took the lives of the firstborn of the children of the Egyptians, but spared the children of the Israelites. You talk about the livestock dying, right? And some of the livestock living. Now we're talking about the children living and the children dying. And God says, these are my people. And, and He says to Moses, I want my people to remember this night. I want God, my people to remember that I set them apart. That I am distinguishing them from the world. The message is that God, again, is separating His people from the Egyptians. In the midst of terrible oppression, God is setting apart a people for Himself. Let me ask you a question. If you consider yourself a follower of Christ, do you see God's sovereign work in your life? Particularly in setting you apart from the world around you. Do you see that? Do you see His work in that? Is he setting apart your life? Or did that setting apart stop 30 years ago or five years ago? Is, has, is God continuing to set apart you, set you apart from the world that is around you? I would encourage us to think beyond just visibly. So I don't smoke, I don't drink, I don't say cuss words like the people around me, but but is my heart set apart? Is it being set apart? Is God's sovereign work taking place and setting you apart? Do you see God's sovereign work in using your trials as a means of separating and distinguishing you? I like how Jonathan Edwards talks about the oppression that, that, that our true religion does, never shines as brightly as it does when it's under oppression. If you don't consider yourself a follower of Christ, or if you don't know, do you, do you see the lack of God's distinguishing you apart from the rest of the world as evidence of your lostness? Your life is not increasingly different from the world because God is not affecting change. 
I'm going to just encourage you, even just in this moment, that to place your faith in the work of Christ on the cross. Stop trying to earn your distinction. Instead, repent and believe in Christ as the one who can distinguish you. So not only do we see God's display His sovereignty and separating the people from a people from the people of, in their current context, the Egyptians, but we also see God's distinguishing of a people for Himself from the people of the earth. So we see God sovereignly lays the foundation for and begins the work of separating a people from all other people. So not just is He going to separate them from the Egyptians, but He's also going to separate them from all the people of the world. And this is where we get beyond, really, the Exodus, and we start moving into on our way to Mount Sinai and at Mount Sinai, specifically. So here we are at Mount Sinai. God gives instruction on how to be His people, a people set apart. I don't know if you've thought about this, but God, God in calling a people to live rightly, was not necessarily obligated to tell us how to do such things. Or to give us such detail and such careful concern. But God will give His people very careful instructions on how they are to be His people. How they are to be set apart from this world. So God, first of all, gives the people the law. This is in Exodus 19-31. through We see God gives His people the law. This is where we see the Ten Commandments. This is where God gives them other statutes and ordinances. The Ten Commandments, you see that in chapter 20. And then... Other statutes and ordinances in 20 through 23. And these laws reflect God's character. And as the people live by these laws, they will reflect God's character to the whole earth. I want you to note something here. God does not give these laws to everyone. He gives these laws to His people. He instructs His people. And then we see God addresses Moses and his people in Exodus 19, verse 4 through 6. It says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. How's that for equal love for all? For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Now I imagine if God is all-knowing, that when He's speaking these words, He has in mind, ultimately, the work that He will do through His Son, Jesus Christ. Now that's not a current reality for the people of Israel. At this point in Israel, they, they, Christ has not come yet, and, but they have these commands, and, and, and God knows that they're going to do well and then fail, and then do well and then fail, and then do well and then fail. And then even after Christ, we all do well and then we fail. We do well and then we fail. But God knows when He is speaking these words that He is setting apart for Himself a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. But He tells Moses very early on, say these words to my people, that I will do this work. Now, of course, this is a task that isn't easy, Think about Exodus 23, verse 5. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. I think this is kind of a funny passage, but 
This is not something that every person in this world would do. Not even today. A donkey of an enemy. I mean, many of us would just let it die, right? Who cares? Or maybe we would help the donkey because we care more for the donkey than we do the person. Remember, though, that all of this, all of these commands, I mean, there's multiple reasons that they serve, but ultimately, I think they are to remind them and remind us of who God is. These weekly observations they are to do, the annual festivals, the holy living, is ultimately to remind them of who God is. Not just to give them a bunch of rules to live by, but to remind them of how holy God is. That's why, that's why we read that passage from Exodus 29. It's a long passage with lots of details. I mean, he's concerned about blood going onto an ear and blood going onto a big toe. And like, like these are weird things, right? I mean, we like, we like live in a Christian culture where we like to keep things ambiguous, you know? We like to keep things high and lofty so we don't have to get into kind of the details. But, but I want to assure you, as we'll see as we continue on through Leviticus and Deuteronomy, that there is no detail that God is not concerned with. And so all of these are to set God's people apart and ultimately to remind them of who He is. So then after God gives the law, it's like 19 through 25, 24 through 5, 25 and on to 31. During that time, we see like the covenants formally sealed. Moses will spend 40 days on Mount Sinai receiving instruction from God. Could you imagine? Could you just imagine, Right? I mean, I hope we don't have too small of a view of God that we cannot even just, we cannot at least begin to imagine what it would be to step foot on the mountain and spend 40 days with God. During this time, Moses receives plans for the tabernacle. He plans for the offerings, the ark, the table, things the priests are to wear. Just some speculation I was thinking about as I was studying this. Is, um, can you imagine like chiseling all that out and writing all that down? Like, all right, God, I got enough details, okay? We're good. <laughs> I mean, they go from like nothing to like having all of this written stuff. Like, think about, but I, but I wonder what, Mo, I, I don't this is just speculation, but I wonder what Moses was thinking. I, I think Moses was thinking, God, thank you that you care enough about us to give us instruction. I don't know. I'm pretty sure that was his attitude there. All these things are here to set God's people apart. He gives all these things to continue setting his people apart. God uniquely gives this to the Israelites and chooses, again, not to give these to the rest of the world, except as it is displayed in his people, and his people will later share those things. But God first gives it to his people. Exodus 31.13 says, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. Again, there's just continual reminder that the people of God are not being set apart by their doing, but by God's doing, by His sovereign work. Now, why is God doing all this? So that the people will know that sanctification and distinguishing of his people is the work of God and no one else's. So first, underneath God separating his people 
from the world, we see that he gives instruction to his people, but then we also see that God instructs his people and commands them to live holy and obedient lives. <clears throat> holy and obedient lives. So he teaches and calls them to holy obedience. And God intends to make his people visibly holy. They will be distinct from all other peoples, and this distinction will reflect the holiness of God. It will reflect the character of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God, so on and so forth. It will reflect the character of God. So I want to talk about one purpose for the law is that it would aid in perseverance. It would aid in the preserving of a people for God's purposes. And I think that that stays true to today. The law serves as a means of helping persevere us in our faith. We look to the law. This is what a holy, a follow, this is what a follower of Christ looks like. Now there's lots of debate even kind of in the preacher world right now, a little bit of what the use of the law is, and at least in my little small preacher world. Uh, it's a little bit of debate. But at the very least, I think the law serves in aiding and perseverance. It serves as a warning, a guide, a marker. I'll see it with the Israelites. Moses was on the mountain. Think about this. Moses was on the mountain. He returns as the people. What are they doing when he gets down to the bottom of the mountain? They are worshiping a golden calf. I just think about that. God is giving written instruction or, or giving instruction to his people. And they're down worshiping a piece of metal. I want you to think about this, though. The Israelites, even if we just take post-Exodus, like they left the Red Sea, saw the mighty works of God, they're journeying for three months to Mount Sinai. The Israelites' disobedience didn't begin as Moses was up on the mountain. Their disobedience began while they were on their way to the mountain. Think about the grumbling about food and the provision along the way. They had already forgotten who God was and that He alone was worthy of worship. So along the way, they begin to question the God that they are supposed to be worshiping, the one who is separating them out. I mean, I mean, think about that. What, what if we saw God send these plagues and God you know, kill these people and God part the Red Sea? I wonder how many of us it would take no more than a month or two to forget who God was. We do the same thing. So the law says don't even touch this particular temptation in our life. But what do we do? We look, we tolerate, we consider, and then we finally adopt. Right? We look, we tolerate, we consider. And then now all of a sudden, we're there. This is what's happening to Israelites. They're, they're, they're thinking, uh, maybe there's Maybe there's something more worthy of our praise than God. Maybe we should go back to Egypt. Maybe, we, maybe, maybe this. And, and then, all of a sudden, they find themselves, what? Worshiping a piece of metal. A golden calf. I think this stands as a warning to us. Your lesser sins are simply paving the way to greater sin. Imagine. 
Imagine, God is giving the plans for the place where he will reside with his people, and they're busy worshiping this calf. But you know the things we worship are just as ludicrous, right? It's just as ridiculous. I mean, God has given us his word. He has written it down, and instead of spending time reading it and knowing it, we spend time doing whatever else we think is more glorious and worthy of our time and and effort and heart and worshiping. So the law serves at the very least a sanctifying tool in our lives and helping us persevere and gives us the, the markers, the guideposts as we as we walk along. Now there's I think there's right ways to understand, you know, what kind of how we understand the ceremonial laws and those kind of things. I don't have time to get into that this morning, but but we look and it gives us a picture of what it looks like to be God's people. Now back to the story, Moses descends from the hill. I want you to think about this. We think about you know, the goodness of God and the gentleness of God with his people in the book of Exodus and, and so on and so forth. But I want you to think, well, he, what happens when Moses returns, they're worshiping the calf, and what happens is Moses breaks the tablets, and what happens after that? 3,000 were executed by sword, and the Lord strikes even more people with a plague. His own people. They got their act together for a little while <laughs> after that, right? So just like in oppression, just like God's display through oppression, nothing will stop God from having a people for himself. Not even the people themselves. You see that? Even when he returns and they are worshiping the calf, not even the people themselves can stop God from, setting a, from God setting apart a people for himself. I want you to see the faith of Moses in for Exodus 32, verse 30 through 32. It says, The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Now, I have to admit, if I'm Moses, I'm like, God, just take them all. <laughs> Here I am, right? Just take me. Start over. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Wow. I mean, just see Moses' faith and just the fact that he can, he's going to go approach God about this. And he's going to try to make atonement for the people's sin, as if that's even possible. He understands the great sin, not, obviously not to the extent of, of, that God does, but he sees it as great sin. And he, if you will not forgive them of their sin, then please blot me out of the book that you have written. And after this, in chapter 34, the covenant is renewed. I mean, think about that. I mean, God is giving them the, the law. He's talking to his people. They're busy worshiping something stupid. And then Moses goes on their behalf. And, and we see the covenant renewed in 34. From here, for a while, the people obey well. They believe God is who he says he is, and now they follow him. Of course, then in chapters 35 through 40, we see them build the tabernacle. 
So we see that God gives instruction to his people. He calls them to a life of holiness and obedience. And then thirdly, we see that God will dwell with his special people only. He will dwell with his special people only. Let's ask this question. What does it really mean to be the people of God? What does it really mean to be the people of God? I think many of us in Christian culture, it means we just simply look or display the visible characteristics of God, right? So we abstain from, from various intoxications and using various four-letter words and is it, is it just to look like Him? Is it just to have a physical representation? Is it just to act like God so that the world might know the character of God? I think, I think Christianity has struggled, at least in our culture today. We struggle to know what, what it is, the purpose of God in having a people for Himself. What is, what is at the heart of what it means for the people of God to be holy and special? I think at the heart of what it means to be God's people is for our lives to be a reflection of God's presence among us. There would be God's presence among His people that the world would see. Not that they would just see that we reflect God, although that's part of it, but that the world would see our God's presence among His people. It's not just that the world would see what God is like. Look at Exodus 33, verse 15 through 16. I think this is where we get to this at. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, of course this is Moses talking to God, do not bring us up from here. If your presence will not go with us, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Right? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth. Just as a quick snapshot, like, this gets to the heart of why God sends Jesus, right, to redeem us from the inside so that God might dwell inside of his people. And we see it here in Exodus. That God is preparing a way. This is all in preparation that God would dwell with His people and then in the, the, the tabernacle and such, and that ultimately God would dwell inside of His people. That, just, just like in the Old Testament, there, there was things that had to be done so that, so that God could dwell with His people, just like that Christ has to come so that God might dwell inside of us. So here Moses is told to go to the promised land, but God says he's not going with them because the people sin. But Moses doesn't want to go if God's presence will not be with them. So Christian, I have a question. Are, are you okay with going on with life without God's presence? Like, are we, are we okay with that? We just go on without God's presence. As long as I'm living, I, I look kind of holy and kind of carry this on, you know. Like, if he would have us to go onto the promised land without him, would you have been cool with that? Sitting in Moses' shoes. I'm good. Yeah. You're going to meet us there, right? Do you see the evidence of the presence of God in your life? Would, Would the people around you affirm the evidence of the presence of God 
in your life? If this is the heart of what it means to be God's people, does the world around us recognize us by the presence of God? Or do they just recognize us as a people that look different because we don't say the same things or watch the same movies? Or That's what happens in the story. God decides, though, to stay with them. But he must make a way for this to happen. So what happens is God takes great care in taking the designing of the tabernacle. This is a reminder to the people that God dwells with them. I want you to think about it this way with me. The, the design of the tabernacle is a reminder to God's people that He dwells with them, but He is still separate from them and separate from their sin. Just because God is in their midst, God's presence is with them, He is still not one of them. He is still separate from them and from their sin. I think we are reminded of this in the Lord's Supper. We're reminded of the Lord's Supper we're reminded of Christ's presence with us. And then we're reminded of our sin. And then we're reminded of the great work that God did so that he might dwell in us. So God, we see, works sovereignly to set apart a people from the world, from the world for himself. They'll reflect his character, and in doing so, the world will see the presence of God among his people. Understand that we are nothing greater than Pharisees if we are self-righteous religious people where the presence of God dwells no longer. Moses knew if they continued on, they would just be these righteous people living, these, living by these laws. But if the presence of God was not with them, then none of it mattered. It was just simply self-righteousness. So the last big thing that we see why does God do this? Why, why does God act sovereignly? Well, God displays His glory through His sovereign work among His chosen people. God aims above all else to display His own glory. Exodus directly challenges the idea that God does everything for humanity's sake. Right? We, even in Western civilization, modern church culture, we still think that God does everything for our sake. No, He does everything for His glory's sake. And then if those of us who are redeemed, we stand as beneficiaries of Him desiring that His glory would be known among all of the earth. Humans are not the ultimate purpose of creation. God's glory is. And we see in Exodus that God does not work all of these things that, that his people would, would be good and it would be happy. He works all these things so that he would be glorified. Just take a brief look at these texts with me. Look, we're going to go very quickly. Exodus 6 7. He says, I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. You shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So here's God saying the purpose is for the Israelites to recognize Yahweh as their God. That he would be recognized as God. Look at chapter 7, verse 3 through 5. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. God hardens Pharaoh's heart so the Egyptians would recognize Yahweh as God. Look at Exodus 8, 10. And he said, tomorrow, Moses said, 
Be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. God is doing all of these sovereign acts, setting apart His people, so that the people of the world would know that Yahweh alone is God. That even the Egyptians would know that He is God. You can look at examples in 9.14 and 9.15 and 10.1. But the last one we'll look at is Exodus 14, verse 31. He says, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians so that the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in His servant Moses. As the people of God feared the Lord, God's glory shines for the world. So God sovereignly places people in Egypt so that that he could display his glory in the Exodus. Again, Egypt, as a superpower, provided the perfect stage, if you will, for God to display his glory. And God works sovereignly to save a special group of people so that we would behold his greatness. God did then and he still does today, and this is what he is doing in the church. God is setting aside a special group of people so that we would behold His greatness. That we would behold His glory. That we would be astounded at the glory of our Creator. I would challenge you, if you aren't beholding the glory of God because of His work and setting yourself and the church apart as a people for Himself, then we probably think too highly of ourselves. God's glory shines right in setting aside sinful people, making them holy, that He might dwell with them. At last, and we'll close with these, three realities that Exodus points us to. Three realities that Exodus points us to. The first one is this. Exodus points to the reality that we in Christ are being set apart as God's people, reflecting who He is and what He is like. This is certainly part of it. Yes, the presence is part of it, but, but He is setting us apart. We are reflecting who He is and what He is like. Jesus, Paul, James, all turn to these passages to teach Christians how they should live. They went to the Old Testament, went to the law. This is what you should live by. This is what it looks to be a follower of Christ. We too should turn to these passages to learn how we should live. Now again, I mean, we have to understand how do we how do we interpret this for our time and apply this for our time and we can talk about that later but for now just know Jesus Paul and James like they turn to these passages we are God's people by his grace and we live out the heart of the law by his grace as we repent for our sins and place our faith in the work of Christ we are set apart as the presence of God in our lives radiates with greater clarity for all creation to see. The third, the second reality, rather, is that Exodus points us to the reality that at the heart of God's command for obedience and holiness is that He might set apart a people in order to dwell with them. God's aim, God's goal, is to dwell among His people. The goal is not that the world simply recognizes us uh, the character of God and our actions and stuff, but the goal is that the world would recognize us as the people of God because the God of the universe dwells with His people. God would dwell with us. 
third reality is that Exodus points us to the reality concerning our salvation. Exodus points us to a reality concerning our salvation. And I have two parts to this. First part is if you are a follower of Jesus, if you consider yourself a follower of Christ, the reality that Exodus points you to is that you cannot preserve your own salvation. Only God can do that. Only God can do that. And He gives us the law. Live according to His commands and statutes. Through these, God can preserve, and, and, and with His Holy Spirit and all that, I understand there's more to the picture than just this. But God will preserve you as your heart desires more and more to live as God requires. The second part, so if you're a follower of Christ, if you're not a follower of Christ, Exodus would point you to the reality that you cannot save yourself. That no amount of righteousness, that no amount of doing, that no amount of persevering through oppression, that no amount of anything can lead you to save yourself. You live, if you're not a follower of Christ, or not sure if you're a follower of Christ, you live under the oppression of your own sin. And only Jesus can set you free from that sin. So my encouragement to you is repent and trust in His saving work, in Christ's saving work as the one who paid the price for your sin on the cross. Believe that God is who He said He is. I want to pray for us and we'll, uh, we'll worship uh, a little more and then we'll be dismissed. Father, let's pray that if there is anyone here that does not know the saving work of your Son, Christ, that that they would in these next few moments, that they would simply cast their, their righteousness, their self-righteousness on before your throne, Father. And that they would stop trusting in themselves, but they would trust in your glorious work through your Son, Jesus. That, that they would repent of their sins and trust in you. And stop trusting in themselves. Father, they would believe that you are who you say you are said you were and you are doing as you have said you will do. Father, uh, Father, for those of us who are followers of your Son, Father, I pray that uh, we would understand that our perseverance as we walk as the people of God, we were not saved by our own doing and we will not be persevered in our salvation because of our own doing. But Father, we know, we know, Father, if we are truly a follower of your Son, Jesus, if that is true, that you who began a good work will see it to completion, that you will finish it, that our inheritance in the kingdom is guaranteed. But it's not guaranteed because of our work, it's guaranteed because of your work. Father, thank you for these great truths and reminders from the book of Exodus, and help us to turn there to see how we might live as the people of God in our day. And Father, I love you so much, and it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Would you guys stand with us as we sing?